0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemisa Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Marcus Bell about his book, Outsiders, Memories of Migration to and from North Korea. This book was published by Berghahn Books in 2022. The book offers an in-depth look at how individuals and families on the move remake themselves and also transform the places they go to. It argues that migration is a survival strategy, not just for migrants, but for the societies they settle in as well. Marcus, welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Fantastic. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us just a bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, sure, of course. Um, So I'm currently uh, working as a consultant to the UN uh, International Organization for Migration, Um, working to both the uh, Myanmar missions and the Cambodia mission. Um, and I'm also a research fellow to uh, La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia, to the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy. And um, so I've been working in these positions um, you know, for a couple of years, but prior to that I was assistant professor at the University of Sheffield in England, um, in the north of England, very proud there. And um, this uh, this had me teaching anthropology and Korean studies as well.
0: Well, I'm very excited to have you here to talk about your fantastic book. Um, So how did you come to write this book, Outsiders?
2: Um, Yeah, great question. Well, I I think as a lot of academics, I I think the interest started with an interest uh, I wanted to know more about myself, <laughs> and we're we're solipsistic, and uh, especially as anthropologists, um, we 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 have these questions about people, and the people we often know the best are ourselves. Um, so I'll admit, um, like uh, my, my interest uh, started. Um, uh, as a kid in movement and migration, um, because I was brought up um, in a military family. I was uh, moving every two or three years in Europe and in Asia. And uh, it became very normal for me to uh, keep moving, to keep moving. And, and then when I was living in um, East Asia as an adult in, in Korea and Japan, it was, um, I started to think more about this positioning or this positionality um as a foreigner being a foreigner being um, on the outside of things and and how what kind of lens this offers to for seeing the world in a distinct way um and it was this way of seeing the world or the world that i wanted to start to understand better so that that's kind of the broad um uh, background, but more specifically, while I was studying my uh, master's degree in Seoul, South Korea, I was um, volunteering at a, an NGO called the Rainbow Foundation, and I was um, it was teaching English, so I, and I was going around the class saying, okay, today we're going to talk about where you're from. I'm from New Zealand, we're famous for sheep, um, where are you from? Um, and the question, the answers. So, so the first... Um, uh, young lady said, oh, I'm from North Korea. I'm from Shinweju. Oh, uh, oh goodness me. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Yeah, okay. And the next person said, I'm from North Korea too. I'm from Hamhong. Uh, wow, all right. And so it went around the circle. Um, each person turned out, they're from North Korea. And here we were talking about sheep in New Zealand and then North Korea with this group of fascinating young men and women. And um, over time, I became um, quite good friends with a couple of them, and we were sitting around one day eating pizza, and uh, as you do, and they said, "You know, Marcus, for your um, for your master's thesis, you should write about us, write about our story. People need to know about North Koreans," and and so that's how it started. My interest in uh, North Koreans and exile specifically—that's how that started. Um, I was involved in various NGOs throughout that time, and then. Um, After I finished my master's, I I, I really needed a a fresh start. I'd been in South Korea for six years by then. I needed to clear my mind. Um, And I heard from friends in Japan that there were around 300 North uh, North Korean exiles living in Japan. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. This is a challenge. Because from what I'd heard, these people were not just North Koreans in exile. They had gone to North Korea. They had chosen to go to North Korea, and then they'd come back. But oh, this is absolutely fascinating. And so I went to um, Japan. Um, at the time, I spoke pretty, I spoke Japan, Japanese rather poorly, um, and I met um, a couple of people. Um, and it's uh, basically it's a snowball kind of methodology. But um, yeah, I, it, it went from there. Um, and, and and then a few years later, we get the book.
0: <laughs> and the result is really just a an incredible uh set of reflections on you know mobility um, identity belonging memory and and all sorts of other really fascinating um aspects so um, you started to talk a little bit about sort of the the population of interest in this book. Mm-hmm. Can can you tell us just a little bit more about you know who are who are the sorts of people uh, about whom this book uh, is uh, is uh, sort of focusing on?
2: Right. So um, broadly speaking, these are people who in the 1960s and 1970s these are um, Koreans who were living in Japan and uh, they were uh, originally, many of them were part were brought to Japan or they went to Japan as part of the Japanese colonial workforce. So they were in Japan, and then in the 1960s and 1970s, they went to North Korea. They went to North Korea because of the various push-and-pull dynamics, but um, they went to North Korea because they wanted a better life, and they thought North Korea looks like somewhere where we can have a better life. And then... Fast forward a few decades, in the last uh, 15 or so years, uh, some 300, approximately 300, have come back to Japan, um, going via China, and um, they have uh, had to restart their lives uh, several decades later. So the book is focused on these uh, men and women and some children who have made these multiple migrations throughout East Asia. Um, uh, sometimes by choice, sometimes they were compelled to by the, those broad macro those macro forces. And it, it, I wanted to know really what, um, how these kinds of multiple migrations shapes uh, and reshapes a person, and then, of course, um, how people who move, um, how they impact and shape the societies to which they move.
0: Wonderful. And I'm hoping we can dive into some of the, these stories in detail. Um, but let me ask you first, uh, you know, what's, what sort of research did you do for this book? You know, what, was, what types of approaches methodologically did you employ here?
2: Um, it, it, a lot of luck. Um, I think luck was a key driving force. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I Initially, I went to South Korea for three months. Um, and uh, when I was in South Korea, uh, this was in 2013, uh, 14 perhaps um, I I got in contact with my um, North Korean friends from the time I was previously there and I talked to them about these people I'd heard about. Did you know someone anyone from Japan and that yeah yeah we know some we knew some people from Japan and and they were pretty much just like us but they had nicer clothes or they had um, um, different smells coming from their kitchens because their grandmothers and mothers were cooking. Um, strange foods oh, okay this is very interesting so all right so after a few months in in Seoul went to um, Osaka in Japan and <clears throat> I uh, I knew it wasn't going to be easy to try and <laughs> track down 300 people um, in Japan so I located with with the help of a dear friend and colleague um, in Japan I located a couple of gatekeepers um, and I spoke with them. One is an academic and another is a journalist. And the journalist said to me, um, yes, I, I, I know some of these returnees uh, um, from North Korea, um, and I would happily introduce you to them, but perhaps you could um, do some volunteer work for my journalist outfit uh, in the meantime. I said, okay, great. Yeah, I'm, um, that'd be good. So I started working for this journalist outfit. I was volunteering there. Um, they gave me a desk, which was more than you know, a lot of grad students have. And I, I was translating and editing uh, reports coming out of North Korea from undercover reporters there. So we, um, this outfit, runs um, uh, uh, undercover reporters, and so it was absolutely fascinating, if a bit harrowing at times, um, to have this kind of uh, direct contact and um uh, so over time uh, the director of this journalist outfit introduced me to some returnees uh and I met more through some other organizations uh and what I tried not to do i try I, I didn't ask for an interview i didn't ask for um i didn't even ask for you know, tell me about your story because um i, I trying to be trying to be a good anthropologist <laughs> all those things we learn as undergrads and and Build rapport, but yeah, uh, you know, and, and and it was great. But what I also found is that a lot of these individuals they wanted to tell their story, and um, so we'd go out for a barbecue, a Korean barbecue in Osaka, or we we'd go and get you know, coffee in, in in Shibuya in Tokyo, and we'd just be I, I'd be talking about my difficulties living in South Korea and how I, I did my best to study Korean, but I always felt like I didn't belong, or in Japan where you know the similar kind of things and they would say yeah that that's that's exactly how i feel now um that's exactly how it, it is even in north korea i was i was for example i was born there but i always felt it didn't quite click with me and that's why i came back so um after a while i we i had interviews um with several people and um it, and a and, and it took a lot of time but i felt it was worth it i i feel to to use some um, more cold language, I felt the quality of the data, <laughs> it, it, it was a high quality data. Uh, oh, I don't like saying those kind of things. But um, And after, after uh, it got to the point where I felt that I, c- I had um, spent enough time in Japan. Um, funds were running low. And um, I needed to, I felt like I needed more to undergird the um, oral histories and the interviews. So I went to Geneva in Switzerland. And again, again, thanks to another friend for um, letting me stay at his place for several months. Um, Geneva is a very expensive place. So I went to Geneva in Switzerland and I became a mole person. Um, I moved into the basement of the International Red Cross archives and I didn't see light for a long time. Uh, but it, it meant that I had access to now declassified files about the repatriation movement. Of course, this book is about repatriation movement, which is the mass movement of 93,000 people from Japan to North Korea. So I had all this data and this, this, these archival documents from the North Korean government, from uh, the Japanese government, from the Red Cross, and I could see, I could triangulate what my learnings from Japan and from South Korea, and see. Okay, so this this um, interviewee said that um, you know she, she went to uh, North Korea aboard this boat, and she described the boat and blah blah blah. And then I could see the the, the boat the ship being written about in the archival documents. I thought, oh, this is this is glorious. This is fantastic. Um, I never. Yeah, you know, it, it it was just. It just things things clicked. Lucky, so lucky. And then um, yeah, and then I came away with a lot of documents photographed over, over several months and um and the writing began.
0: And you put it together in the book really so well. Um so diving in, you you begin the book by you know, describing conditions in post-World War II Japan and the movements that took place to North Korea. And here you're especially interested in comparing Official history with what you call vernacular memories. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, right. So, um, vernacular memories is, um, I, I use this term to describe the, the, the personal histories, the kind of histories that um, exist within um, often sub communities or uh, minority communities um, or within families. Um, so these are. It, it, might be, it might be as simple as um, we all, uh, every family has a we were almost rich story about uncle so-and-so who, and he owned a big factory and then he blew it all at the gambling table. So it's, it's things like these are very personal histories. And so these vernacular memories um, that uh, in this case, they are memories of life in Japan, life in Japan as a Korean minority. Uh, in life in Japan in the 1940s 50s and 60s and remember Japan hasn't always been the wealthy high-tech place that it is today and so back in the 1940s during the Second World War um, Koreans were often working um, in uh, very difficult dangerous and dirty jobs in factories in mines in in very uh, demanding spaces and so they were working working in, in these areas, and um, they life was very difficult for them. But then the war ends, and everyone goes, hurrah, hooray. The problem is that um, uh, in Japan, of course, Japan was a defeated nation, and the Japanese were uh, far from happy about being de- defeated. And the, uh, the Koreans there, who initially thought, yay, now we're liberated, we're under the Japanese yoke, they said, okay, but now what happens? Some of them have been born in Japan, some of them are just Japanese. Japan was home um, and they had to figure out what happened in their lives next. And what they found very quickly is that they were they were not Japanese. they were not regarded as Japanese. They were they were outsiders in a place where in some cases they lived their entire lives. Um, and so uh, while many went back to Japan, 600 around 600 650,000 Koreans stayed uh, sorry apologies. while many went back to Korea. Around six hundred and fifty thousand stayed in Japan, and it's their memories, their intimate memories, their vernacular memories of life during this time of being pushed to the margins, of um, not being able to um, rent in certain areas, and um, of not being able to find jobs in certain positions because they were Koreans, even though they could speak Japanese perfectly, you know, in everywhere, blah blah, blah. not being able to marry um, in Japan a, a, a Japanese family because they they would. They weren't permitted to protect the purity of the bloodline. So um, it's these micro-memories, these vernacular memories, which come up against, they clash against um, the Japanese official memories of the memories of the uh, majority society. Now, official memories, these are things which we often, we don't even consider them as uh, memories. These are uh, things like, uh, I think I give the example in the book of uh, George Washington crossing the Delaware, um, and uh, how this is um, this this act has become enshrined in American folklore. It's in every American book, and it's that is an official memory. It's uh, something which is used alongside the um, stars and stripes uh, and the national anthem. These are symbols of what it is to be an American. Um, I realize here I'm talking to an American, so please tell me if I've got any of that wrong. <laughs> um, but Uh, In the similar, I use the example from Australia and New Zealand as well with the ANZACs. Um, These were soldiers who fought in the First World War, and the ANZAC has become a foundational myth, just as the crossing of the Delaware and the War of Independence has become a founding myth of our societies. So these are official memories. And when you have these vernacular memories coming in and saying, actually, some of what you're talking about isn't quite right, in fact, you know, it. In my community, we didn't experience the benefits of um, of um, freedom, if you want to use that word, <laughs> or or we didn't experience the benefits of um, the economic boom. Uh, in fact, we we couldn't get jobs because we were Korean in Osaka, or we couldn't um, we weren't allowed to. Uh, we, uh, we weren't allowed to rent in this area of Sydney because we were we we are indigenous people. So you have these clash of um, these uh, minority community and and the stories that they tell themselves and their history, their histories with the dominant societies' um, uh, founding myths and their official histories. Uh, and that's what I use to. Un- um, describe what's happening with the return of people from North Korea and and their experiences of post-war Japan um, uh, yeah I, I hope that makes sense
0: <laughs> right and you you show how um, and please correct me if I'm wrong but you, you show how it is that sort of the official narrative in Japan that this was a humanitarian mission to repatriate. <laughs> Um, Koreans who voluntarily wanted to return to North Korea is sort of at odds with some of these vernacular memories, uh, as you put it, of you know actual Koreans describing the the hardship and the persecution uh, and the discrimination that their that their families encountered in Japan and the ways in which they sort of got caught up in geostrategic considerations as well involving Japan and the Koreas uh, that led to sort of this this push. Um, f- to return them, right to to the Koreas, not, not you know, not actually return them to North Korea, because as you know, most of them, uh, their families are actually from South Korea, right, and they wind up uh, going to North Korea. Um, but the the book then goes on to talk about various strategies that people um, use. You know, these families that are moving between Japan and the and the Koreas across generations. Um, and one of the strategies that they use, uh, that you describe is, um, they use marriage to build alliances. Can you, can you describe that process for us?
2: Right. So, yeah, th- yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, w- what I noticed early on when I was talking to, um, uh, the returnees from North Korea is that they could, they could often, um, describe their family background going all the way back to the, um at least to Japan, their first moment moments in Japan, <clears throat> if not back to an island off the south of the Korean Peninsula called Jeju Island. And and one of the commonalities in, in, across the stories was that, oh, well, yeah, we, we always made sure we had a matchmaker from Jeju Island so that we could marry another Jeju Islander because, you know, we wouldn't want to marry someone from a different province. Oh, goodness, no, oh, goodness. Okay, that's interesting, I thought. I said, all right, very interesting. And then, so they're they're, they're marrying not just other Koreans in Japan, but they're they're seeking out people from the same island, if not the same part of the island. All right, then they go to North Korea, and similar kinds of things are happening to the, the Koreans who go to North Korea. They are employing matchmakers from Who've who've been on the boat with them and, and from Japan, and if possible, who can also also come from Jeju, who are setting them up with with someone um, from maybe in another town or village in, in living in North Korea, but who has the same um, background, same migratory background, so they've made similar journeys, but then the same and the same ethnic background, but then the same um, kinship background, in in that they come from a similar. Um, the same village or the same town or the same area of the island. And similar things are happening also with the returnees to Osaka and and Tokyo. So returnees, they recognize that they have a common language. They recognize that they have a common um, uh, background and a common way of seeing the world. You know, we all do this, even uh, unconsciously. And um, so now returnees, um, also several of them, I, I, I spoke with. They uh, they marry each other as well. Again, um, they don't. Well, in this case, they don't necessarily need matchmakers because there are so few of them in Japan. They, it's usually through the um, through the nascent uh, returning networks. But this kind of intermarriage, um, it's it, it has its advantages because you uh, you you have things in common with that not just the person you're marrying, but also your family. Is more likely, the idea is, to get on with their family. Great. The problem, of course, is that, or what they found out, is that it exacerbates an already existent um, uh, distance between these new arrivals and the host society. So uh, instead of um, mm. marrying a local and then um, sort of bridging that gap and maybe your children will uh, be able to speak either Korean or Japanese better, um, that doesn't happen. So they're marrying within their group, and they're not—I um, guess you'd say—integrating. They're not integrating into the broader society.
0: Another strategy uh, that you describe is what you call identity management. Um, so I wanted to ask you—you know—and um, m- maybe you could you could give us uh, specific examples, you know, if if you're able. But uh, you know, how how did some of your interlocutors? sort of manage their identities uh, to try to survive in North Korea, having, you know, moved from Japan to North Korea?
2: Right. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of these people who went to North Korea, of these 93,340 people who went to North Korea, many of them were optimistic that they would have a, a better life there. They were offered um, free education, free healthcare, free housing, opportunities to study, um in, in Pyongyang, or if not Pyongyang, you know, maybe, maybe you could even go and study in Moscow, um, if you were exceptional. And at the same time, they had these uh, push factors. The, the, the Japanese government didn't want Koreans there anymore, and so they were pushing them to, um, to leave. And they got there, and they found very quickly that they were considered little different to Japanese. And this was a stark realization to people who had, in many cases, regarded themselves as staunch Korean patriots. They believed in the message of Kim Il-sung. They believed in the message of a Korean, uh, for Koreans, built by Koreans. And you remember um, the Korean War, 1950 to 1953. North Korea was still recovering from it, but it was doing far better economically than South Korea and continued to do so until the late 60s, early 70s. And then they got there And the locals look at them and say, "Hmm, you uh, you dress you dress like Japanese. You barely speak Korean. You walk like a Japanese person. What's the difference here?" And 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 so they immediately they felt these frictions. Now now for a while, um, for the families who had still had strong connections to um, family and friends in Japan. Uh, they were able to leverage the goods and money sent to them from Japan to uh, to develop networks in North Korea to bribe cadres to um, basically uh, survive some of the harder times there was there had been sporadic food shortages in North Korea throughout its existence and 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 create a kind of buffer against um, against these uh, threats to their to their um, to their families, to their communities, but for many people, they didn't have the luxury of having this money and, and good sense to them, which they could sell or buy things with, and they they found that um, they had to be very very careful in how they presented their in outside face, if you if you want to call it their face, outside identity, and so I talk about identity management um, in the way that many of these families very quickly realize if they speak Japanese in public, if they act Japanese in public, if they say the wrong thing about Kim Il-sung, the leader of um, of North Korea at that time, they would be punished for it. And it started when they first, um, some of the younger ones, there are a couple of um, uh, interviewees uh, who described being in high school and they didn't know how to speak Korean but they knew very quickly they very quickly they learned um, swear words because the the north korean um, students around them would call them terrible things terrible things and so they learned very quickly these are the bad words okay and then they learned if they speak japanese in class if they heard if they if they write in japanese they will be punished physically punished in class so though they started early on and then when they got older, one interview in particular told me it was good we learned this when we were young because when we were adults and she, and she held her wrists together, she told me this, to um, to show me uh, like the, as if the wrists had been bound. And she was indicating that she would, they would have been very severely punished. So, to, sorry, I, I digress. But the point is that they learned very quickly that outside they would act Korean. They would speak Korean. They would wear when, where, and when possible. They would wear the appropriate clothes. They would um, they would go to the uh, to the sessions where they would have to self-criticize, and they would do it with great gusto. But then, inside the home, inside these most intimate of spaces, uh, they could cook some of the Japanese food products that were sent to them. They could speak Japanese, and one interviewee. Um, Record to me a time that, that, that there were many blackouts, never enough power. And during those blackouts, um, d- dad would get out the guitar and, and he'd sing Japanese songs to us now, very quietly, Mike. Very quietly, there wasn't going to be a big party in Japanese, but these were the ways that outside at Korean, inside, um, you can act, you can, you can feel more comfortable. And and this was, um when 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 returnees returnees to north korea would meet each other they would um i they'd say okay what's your name what what ship did you arrive on where are you from in japan and this would be a way of identifying okay this is a trusted person and this is um this is someone who maybe has been here longer than me they can teach me things about north korean society um but this is how they managed to survive and and i also i describe it as um Not just a way of acting, but a a form of um, what James Scott referred to as weapons of the weak. So, a form of a form of resisting those broader um, oppressive dynamics that were being channeled towards them by the government, by the state, to try and erase, to try and stomp out any of their, um, uh, I guess, hybrid Japanese characteristics. And so, these kind of this kind of resistance. It, it, it wasn't about protesting or anything like that, because you can't do that in North Korea. But it was about um, writing writing letters to family back home and letting them know how you were doing through coded messages. It was about cooking and, and consuming Japanese foods. And, and what I uh, argue is that um, these ways of uh, acting, they what happened is that these people, these families, they ended up feeling quite connected to communities and families back in Japan. Now, so what I'm saying, what I say here is what I argue is that these ordinary practices contributed to the careful management and then transmission of a a group characteristic to the next generation. And this was not an ethno-nationalist or revolutionary socialist identity. It was a trans-local identity that connected these families, not back to Japan as a country, but back to localities in Japan, back to the communities that they left. So that's why these kind of identity management, um, this this identity management strategy is um, particularly important beyond the phenomenon itself.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Now, so you, you document so the, the decision-making process whereby people whose Families originally moved from Japan to North Korea, then decide to leave North Korea. Right, um, but there's a little bit of a puzzle here. Right, why do people who are leaving North Korea decide to go to Japan rather than going to South Korea, where they would receive state benefits and where there would seem to be closer cultural and linguistic ties?
2: So, exactly. why is it
0: that people choose Japan?
2: Yeah, exactly. So. Um, this, this was something I needed to know because having previously res, um, carried out research in South Korea, I, I know that the South Korean government provides a very generous resettlement package for people from North Korea. The Japanese government does not, um, uh, for you know, reasons you can understand. But, but um, uh, this, these people were choosing to come to Japan. Why, why were they doing it? Well, there was one particular interviewee um, named Son Dong-hyun. And he explained to me, I actually did the maths, you know, I I did the calculations and I worked out, okay, the resettlement package in South Korea will get me this much money. Great, great. And um, the uh, social welfare, which I'll be on in Japan, will support me this way. And he said, you know, actually, they weren't too different. But what I was, what I'd heard about is that the North Koreans who go to South Korea, uh, they start dead at the bottom and they're subject to a lot of prejudice. They're considered like the country bumpkin cousins um, and and the tax drain on, on South Korean coffers. Now, I thought about going back to Japan and I thought about the friends I used to have. I thought about the, the, the places I used to hang out. Uh, I, I thought, oh, actually, I still speak pretty good Japanese. You know? I left, he, in this case, I think he left when he was Ten or eleven or something, and it, it, was, it was he based his decision not on not on the um, simply the financial aspects and the opportunities that he and his children might have got in South Korea with um, preferential access to universities and things like that, um, but on the emotional ties which which had connected him continued to connect him over three or four decades of living in. North Korea; those emotional ties back to communities in Japan, and um, I, I found this particularly interesting because it challenges um, it challenges uh, well what what is regarded as well understood and accepted ideas about what drives migrants to go places. Economics: everyone goes from here to there because they can make more money. It's more complicated than that, and so I. I the various examples I give show um, the, other, the other factors involved, and they are emotional drivers and, and decisions are made within the family about what matters and what doesn't matter. How do we keep you safe? It's not just about how do we make more money. <laughs> um, so uh, th- that's really what I'm talking about when I talk about emotionally directed mobility, and um, I think Dong Hyun's example. I found it particularly compelling. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've got a couple of others in there too.
0: <laughs> so there's also um, a fascinating discussion that you go into about how changing labor and gender relations have shaped uh, returnees' experiences in Japan. Can, can you tell us about that?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, in the... In the, in the early 1990s, uh, the North Korean economy collapsed and um, this was due to uh, the end of the Soviet Union, and Soviet Union was the primary benefactor of, the no- of North Korea, and then a series of floods and other terrible um, uh, environmental disasters uh, struck the country. The North Korean government was not prepared in any way, and um, so they basically said to the people, it's up to you. Uh, you will have to endure this in the same way that Kim Il-sung endured his uh, time, his, the hardships of fighting the Japanese imperialists during the, you know, during the 1930s. Okay, so what happened is, interestingly, because while although the economy had collapsed, the um, men in particular... We still had to go to work, they still had to go to the factory, they still had to go to the office, they still had to go to the field because that's what men do and they were expected to be present. Women, however, well, in although North Korea considered itself to be a women's paradise, um, women they work and then they the traditional role in, in North Korea as um, a child raising role, and it women were started. Um, Uh, While they looking after children and doing all these other things, they were also doing things like brewing rice wine, uh, making tofu, making uh, rice snacks, things like that. And what happened is that this um, household economy um, shifted outside to black markets. And so gradually it was women who were making the... Making these products and then making the money, which came into the house and to, to and, or, or trading in the barter system, to support the families and support the broader North Korean economy. And so, in this um, and so in this time, in, in the uh, mid early mid nineteen nineties, uh, women North Korean women became absolutely essential for keeping the family families. And the state afloat, they were, they were um, trading um, uh, homemade products. They were trading from China. They were uh, they they were the grinders. They were making things happen. And there are, what I argue in the book is that there have been echoes of this um, of this gendered um, this 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 uh, flip in gender roles that, that took place in North Korea. There have been echoes of these changes in the North Korean diaspora. So, of course, I'm looking at Japan in this case. And um, w- w- through my um, ethnographic work in Osaka and Tokyo and through my interviews, I uh, I found that it, it seemed to me that women were more willing, for example, to look for help from um, Japanese NGOs, to accept help, to do jobs which... Um, they were probably way too skilled for, way too, you know, they, 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 but they were willing to do those jobs so that they could, um, uh, like, have a hope of accessing upward socioeconomic mobility, so that they could have a hope to learn Japanese quickly, so that they could hope to move out of the, sleeping on the floor of the factory in Osaka to moving into their own apartment. And these were women who had previously been working in markets in North Korea, supporting their families. Now, in contrast, um, some of the men I worked with seemed um, almost trapped by their um, understandings of what masculinity is. So they couldn't ask for help, they couldn't accept help, and they couldn't take jobs which they considered were beneath them even if it meant that they weren't able to um, uh, source an income stream that would support their family. They, all, they certainly couldn't go to a Japanese language school where they would be surrounded by women learning Japanese. In, in, in That's obviously not my voice. That's the voice of uh, an interviewee. And, and so what happens is that the, the, many of the women I worked with, uh, the women returnees from North Korea, they were speaking fluent Japanese, they were opening businesses at the markets. they were doing things which you just you just think wow, impressive like this is this is this is hustling this is awesome. In contrast, um, some of the men I worked with seemed um, to not have really improved the situation at all since the arrival in in Japan uh, because of the, what they regarded as, a man's role, a man's job. Now, of course, this is a rough rendering. I might explain it in, in more detail in the book, but I found this fascinating because I could trace it back to the early and mid-1990s when it was women who supported North Korea in, it, in some of its darkest times.
0: Now, um, in the book, you document how uh, it is that in Japan, there are a number of civic organizations that attempt to assist uh, returnees from North Korea. H- how would you characterize the relationship between returnees and these activists in Japan?
2: Yeah, so I, I, I'd I like to, I should just start by saying that um, many of these organizations are absolutely crucial. They, they do incredible work um, supporting returnees from North Korea. Uh, they do things like find them, uh, accommodation, if they arrive, when when returnees arrive in Japan, they, they have nothing. They often don't speak Japanese, they have no money, um, they're starting, often, often starting from scratch, um, they might have some family, they might have some friends. So they find them accommodation if they don't have any. They find them, they help source some jobs if they don't have a job. Uh, they direct them towards local Japanese language schools um, if they don't speak Japanese, which many don't. So they do crucial work and what happens is that I, I, I argue that what happens is that these returnees who take on who take these things who take these gifts from them feel an immense weight of obligation. And so I'm drawing on mouse here I'm drawing on um, I'm drawing on various um, anthropological ideas of gift-giving. And, um, how it creates relationships, but also how it can threaten to destroy relationships. And so they, they accept these, and they, they arrive in Japan, they accept these great things, and they can start their lives. But they, they feel like they have to give something back to the activists. So they go to um, activist meetings, or NGO meetings. And, and many of these men are the same, who run, the, who run these organizations. Are uh, they, They're very anti-North Korea they want to see the end of the regime in North Korea. And um, they these returnees from North Korea, they, they say, OK, can you come to the meeting and can you tell us about your you know, the, the, your hard life in North Korea? Um, or can you um, provide a testimony for our website where you um, explain how we rescued you or how we supported you? OK, now, the problem is there that um, they, in, in joining with these uh, activists, these NGOs, and their past, what they their lives in North Korea, are required to be almost weaponized by these groups and used as evidence um, of that North Korea is a hell on earth. And they have to. They feel like they need to keep doing this. Why do they need to keep um, supporting these groups? Why do they need to keep attending these meetings? Why do they? Because they can. You can never repay such a heavy debt. The gift of freedom. The gift of freedom from North Korea is something which all the all the testimonials, all the um, help that you could provide these groups with, will never be enough. And so it's an incredible burden. But, and, and it threatens not just their sense of security, but also their family back in North Korea. How does it do this? Because if you're standing on a stage and you're writing about how horrible my life is in North Korea and how, um, uh, how the Kim regime um, are tyrants and terrible, they are terrible but um, and you're writing about these things and you still have family in North Korea they are threatened they are you you are you're really um, you are making it possible that you will be identified and that your family will be identified and it will, could cause them severe problems in North Korea so I talk about the gift in this chapter um, because I talk about the the, the, the exchange that takes place and it's an unequal relationship and it's a, it's a heavy gift that they take. Uh, they can never be repaid. They try and repay it through their stories, through their um, engagement with these NGOs, but they never can. And the problem is one of choice. Returnees working with Japanese civic groups, they, they don't feel that they can refuse to help, even if their participation in high profile attacks um, on the on North Korea risks their own life. Um, so I, I try and unpack this relationship and 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 I, I see it as for all the incredible good that these groups do, it, it has its problematic aspects too.
0: So um, my my final question about the book is uh, you have you have a really insightful chapter on uh, mobility and memory. Um, can I ask you to describe? what you call, quote, the strategic use of remembering and forgetting, end quote.
2: Yeah, sure. So in this chapter, um, I I talk about um, three returnees from North Korea now living in Osaka. And one of them is called Sungmi. And um, I accompanied Sungmi on a journey um, to try and find her hometown. Now, Sungmi left Japan in the 1960s I think she was uh, 13 14 years old something like that and since she came back to Japan she'd been there around four five no 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 she'd been there about a year at that time she had felt like she couldn't connect to anything nothing at all and and without that connection without being able to remember herself in Japan at that time it was extremely difficult for her to ever believe that this could have once had been home, that, that this was the right place for her. So we went on this long train journey out to the countryside. And um, we, at the end of the line, it was a really hot day. We walked up and down, up and down the hills looking for a, her old house. Now, in the early 1960s Japan, in this particular um, village, the houses were made of wood. They were all it was old style Japanese living. And so um, we we assumed it had just been you know we, we couldn't we could find it and then we decided uh, let's ask a local and so we asked a local do you know do you remember any um, Korean families living here fifty years ago uh, uh, and, she, and and she said oh she sort of you know scratched her chin and, and gazed into the distance uh, so actually yes I, I remember I remember some Korean families um, there. They, they used to, all the kids used to run around the hill over there. And there was a, an old Korean man where, who used to smoke a pipe. But they all went to North Korea. They all went. And so he said, yeah, that was us. That was me. That was us. And, and so they started speaking um, uh, quite fast. Uh, and <laughs> it's difficult to keep up. But what they were doing is they're exchanging memories about what life was like in that village at that time. And you could, at the end of the conversation, I mean, you could see the life that had been breathed into Sun Mi's face. Her, her, she, she looked like a different person. And and the, the the old lady took her by the arm, and we walked across the road to this parking lot. And she said, pointing at the parking lot, "She said, this is where your home was.'" And I, I thought to myself, "Oh no, goodness, this is this is rather depressing." Um, but as we as we said our goodbyes and walked away. Sumi, she had reconnected with the help of that woman and the collaboration of memory. She had reconnected to a time and a place which had almost been completely destroyed. Even if her home was now a car park, she had imagined it there. She could see it in front of her through her memories. And I found this incredibly, um, an incredibly compelling experience that demonstrated the power of memory in relocating someone. And 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 allowing them to feel a connectedness to a space and a time, which well uh, half half a century earlier. Um, So I think yeah that's that 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 was I think that was the most um, for me the most interesting example of how some of these returnees um, find find connectedness find build a relationship to the place that they left so long ago. But of course there are there are returnees who were born in North Korea. So these are the children, the grandchildren of people who went from Japan to North Korea. And those returnees, they don't have their own memories of life in Japan. Instead, they have inherited memories of life in Japan. We talked about earlier, um, the um, you know, at home, singing songs in Japanese, telling Japanese folk stories, and cooking Japanese food. Those actions fostered in this younger generation um a connectedness back to Japan, but it also gave them memories. And so they they came back to Japan with those inherited memories, and now they have to try and figure out how do these inherited memories fit, and how do I fit with Japan? How does it all come together? And so the example I give of this younger um, returnee called Mison. she has tried desperately to find a place for herself in Japan. She speaks beautiful Japanese, she wears Japanese um, clothes, does Japanese makeup, um, she works a Japanese company, and she's done everything she can to pass, um, knowing that my parents are once here, my grandparents are once here, so I'm here too. But it never works, because she makes a simple grammar mistake, grammatical error, she, her accent slips a little bit, and suddenly it's the old question, uh, uh, where where are you really from where are you, no where, where are we what is that what do you, what did you just say and so she f- feels like she failed in japan so she went to south korea okay so you know originally my parents from south korea it will work there unfortunately a similar kind of thing she said she said to the grandmothers in the market in jeju island i'm from here this is my hometown they say mm no you're not your accent you're not from here you're a Zainichi, you're a Korean Japanese, so failure again. And so her story is one of not being able to identify one place, but I don't view that as a failure in the book. I view that as an opportunity and um, a new and interesting way of belonging, not just for Mison, but for other people that I worked with, other returnees from North Korea, because so much of what we understand it, uh, about uh, nations and communities is based on sedentary existence—that is, staying in one place, being tied with your roots and your and your family history and all these kind of things, which are so you know so important. But these people offered alternative forms of belonging. And Mison's example, where she feels like she fell in one place, fell in the other. Now she she came to a place in her life where. She started to feel, maybe I am connected to everywhere. I have stories here. I have stories there and there. So I don't need to try and pretend to be Japanese. It's never going to work anyway. So I try and I don't get fully there, but I try and um, uh, articulate the, the that nascent sense of acceptance about this is an, a different way of seeing myself and these places in the world.
0: Well, Marcus, I, I really wish we had more time to talk about the book. Uh, you know, it, it's really it's such an insightful look at sort of the interplay between dislocation and reinvention, as, as you say in the book, both for the migrants, but also for, the, for host societies. Um, and I just want listeners to know that, you know, we've only sort of, been able to really touch on some of the really powerful and moving stories that are in the book Um, and I should note that the book is also beautifully written Um, so listeners will really really enjoy uh, going through it if you pick it up Um, so Marcus just one final question Um, you know this book is done uh, and so you know we're wondering what is what is it that you're working on now
2: yeah, wow, um, the book is done, exclamation mark. Um, so I've, um, I've shifted recently away from East Asia, and now I'm working on forced migration, um, human trafficking, and labor migration in Southeast Asia. So it's a bit of a sideways step, but I feel like I'm acting as more of a practitioner than I was before. I'm employing these skills and ideas that I was teaching in a very hands-on way Um, which is good for an anthropologist. I feel like that's what I should be doing. And it's keeping me busy. Um, We'll see what comes out of it in the future in terms of books. But honestly, I think like a lot of people, the last couple of years has been a bit turbulent with the pandemic and then the coup in Myanmar. And it's changed the course of my research in ways um, I didn't anticipate. But, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to what comes next. I'm enjoying what I'm doing now. Um, and uh, if it means I can stay in one place for more than a, two or three years, I, I, I think that would be that would be a blessing.
0: <laughs> well, I, I, I look forward to see um, to see what you, what you produce next. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, Marcus. thank you for being on the show today.
2: Thank you very much. Lenny. appreciate it.
0: The book is Marcus Bell's Outsiders: Memories of Migration to and from North Korea, published by Berghan Books in 2022.